We are in Luke chapter 2, and let me begin with just a question to get our minds thinking about our text. What do Costco gas, the um, in and out in Seaside, the one freeway at 5 p.m., and calling your health insurance, what do all those things have in common? Yes, very, very long lines. The testing of our patients. Do you like waiting in long lines? Yeah, that was a rhetorical question. But neither do I. I do not like waiting in long lines. In fact, we do everything we can to not wait in those lines. I can't tell you how many times I've been at Trader Joe's and have misread a line. I thought that that line was going faster, so I get out of my line to get in that line, and that line begins to go a lot slower than the line that I left. Does it irk you when you're on the freeway and you're in one lane and You think that's the faster lane, but then all the cars are just zipping by you in the other lane that you just got out of. The truth is that we are not patient people. We don't like to wait. And we really don't like waiting for for two reasons, if you can boil it down. One is because waiting makes us feel powerless. But we also don't like to wait Because it not just makes us feel powerless, but it creates anxiety, irritability. We don't know how long we're going to wait, and because we don't know how long, we don't feel good inside. As much as we hate waiting, we still tell our kids that waiting is a virtue, that it builds character. In fact, um, Not too long ago, we took our kids to California Adventure. We were all excited to go on that new ride at California Adventure called Radiator Springs, the Cars Ride. And we thought we did everything humanly imaginable to avoid the long line. So we went to bed really early. We woke up really early. We got to the park before the park opened. This was the first ride that we go to. And still, somehow, there's a 90-minute wait People must have, like, slept there the night before, waiting in line. And so here we are with a 90-minute wait, and then we start to deliberate. Do we leave? Do we get out of line? Do we come back? And then that doesn't make sense, because if we go and we come back, it's just going to be a longer line. So what do we do? We sit and we wait. And we have to deal with the questions from the kids. How long? How long? How long? We see people getting out of line. We're getting closer and closer and closer. Now we can actually see the ride working And then the ride breaks down. And so people start to leave. And that just means we can get closer. And so we begin to deliberate again. Do we leave like everyone else because everyone's just walking right by? Or do we inch our way closer to the front? And so we decide to stay. And we stay and we wait and we wait and we wait. And we get right up to the front. And the ride breaks down again. And this time, we don't get on. Everyone gets dismissed. And then we walk away from that, thinking to ourselves, was that worth it? 
There was no satisfaction, no joy. We did go back to the ride and waited for a little bit less time. And again, we asked the same question, was that wait worth it? Well, that question sets up our text for this morning, because as we come to Luke chapter 2, we have to remember that for thousands of years, the people of Israel were waiting for their Messiah. They were longing for him. They wanted him to come and make all things right, for him to come and bring salvation, to bring liberation, to bring restoration. Everyone was waiting for the Messiah. And in the first century, the Jewish people felt like he couldn't come fast enough. The blasphemous Caesar Augustus was sitting on the Roman throne. Then there's King Herod, who's not of the line of David. He's actually from Idumea, a descendant of Esau. He's not supposed to king, be the king, but he's there. The Pharisees and scribes had everyone burdened under the weight of their external and empty religious religiosity. The Sadducees, if you remember that sect, had caved and gave way to religious liberalism. Then you have the Zealots who are waiting for the Messiah, but they're waiting with swords in hand, waiting at the right moment to revolt. But then you have another group, and that group is the righteous remnant, those who exercise faith, those who are trusting in God, those who are waiting and longing for God to provide salvation at just the right time. And that time has come. We read in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And as we've been studying the last couple of weeks, he's here. Jesus has finally come, God in human flesh, the creator of the universe, come as a baby. The family is there. The angels are giving testimony. Last week, we looked at Simeon's testimony And this week, we cap it off by looking at Anna's testimony. So would you please uh, stand with me as we read Luke chapter 2, and we're just going to read verses 36 through 38. Here is God's word for us once again. Luke 2, 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow of the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Would you have a seat and join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for this brief account. Oh, how sweet and beautiful this account is. As we look at the life of Anna, would you please turn our hearts and our minds to baby Jesus, come as promised to provide redemption and salvation for all who would believe. Illuminate our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Anna here is described in just three short verses. She just jumps on the scene out of nowhere, and then she jumps off the scene, and we don't see her. She's not mentioned again in the Gospels. 
And so the question is, why spend a whole entire message on three verses and on what seems to be an insignificant character on Anna? I mean, think about the Christmas playlist that we've already looked at. Zachariah had a song. Mary had a song. Simeon had a song. The angels had a song, but not Anna. In fact, there's no recorded words out of the mouth of Anna in our text. So what makes this story about Anna so remarkable is that it's not really a story about Anna. You, you realize that. It, it's not really about Anna at all. It's about what, or more specifically, who Anna's waiting for and what happened after that wait was over. You see, Luke's purpose in including this story is, yes, that every fact had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And so Anna joins Simeon in bearing witness to the infant Jesus as the Messiah. That is there. But more than that, Anna's here for us as a model. A model for what it means to have a heart pregnant with hope. And what it means to wait patiently with eager expectation for the Lord's salvation. Both Simeon and Anna, during that time, wouldn't have been viewed in a highly respectable way. They should have been, but they were both old, and many people would have probably written them off as being weird. They're always talking about the Messiah coming, the Messiah coming. But these two sweet, dear, godly, older saints were passionate for God's glory. And they were thoroughly convinced that he would make good on his promises that he promised long ago. And so if you're taking notes, here's our main idea just from these couple of verses. In Luke chapter 2, 36 through 38, we learn that the pious patiently wait for Jesus, praise him when they see him, and proclaim him to others for their comfort and joy. Let me say it again. In Luke 2, 36 through 38, we learn that the pious patiently wait for Jesus. They praise him when they see him, and they proclaim him to others for their comfort and joy. And in our text, we're just going to look at three major headings. First, we're going to start with the piety of Anna, then the providence for Anna, and then the proclamation of Anna. The piety the providence, and the proclamation. So let's begin there in verse 36, the piety of Anna. It says again, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Now, it's real important. I'm not sure if it says it in your text, but there's an Anne in the beginning of mine, and you can't miss that because the Anne connects Anna to Simeon. And you say, how are they connected? Well, same time, same place. They are there when Joseph and Mary arrive on the temple grounds, presumably in the court of women. And it says that she is a prophetess. If you look back at verse 25, we're introduced to Simeon, but there he's just introduced as a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. But here Anna's introduced like this. There was a prophetess, Anna. Now, Anna might be familiar to you. It's the same name as the Old Testament name, Hannah. 
you know that Hannah is Samuel's mom, and Anna and Hannah not only share the same name, but much of the same characteristics. As you look at these two women, their, their name means favor or grace, and both of them obviously were women of grace, women of favor, and they were both marked by their devotion and by their prayer and by their eager waiting. Now, the big question is, what does it mean that she was a prophetess? If you look back in the Old Testament, there are only a handful of women who are referred to as prophetess. You have Miriam, who's Moses' sister, and we have her prophecy recorded in Exodus 15. Then there's Deborah, the sister, I'm sorry, another prophetess named Deborah. She's the woman that we know judged Israel for a time. There's another prophetess named Huldah. Huldah lived in Jerusalem during the time of King Josiah. Then there was Noadiah. Many of you probably have not heard that name. She is a false prophetess, and we learn about that in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 14. Then there's one more. There's an unnamed prophetess during the time of Isaiah. Maybe Isaiah's wife, probably, most likely Isaiah's wife. And she's the one that was given this name for her son, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. What a name. But that name revealed Israel's impending doom. And that's it for prophetesses in the Old Testament. It's important to note, though, as you look at those ladies, that they didn't have an ongoing prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, one of the reasons why people make for having women pastors and women preachers is because while there was women prophetesses in the Old Testament. But once again, they prophesied at some important events, one-time event, but it was never an ongoing ministry. You say, well, what about the New Testament? When you get to the New Testament, you have only two people that are mentioned. One of them right here, Anna. And the other one, interestingly, is a prophetess referred to as Jezebel in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. This Jezebel-like woman was teaching the church at Thyatira to follow idols and to pursue sexual immorality. And that is it. Well, there's maybe one more, but those people are not mentioned. It is Philip's four unmarried and unnamed daughters that we see in Acts chapter 21. And so again, the question is, why is Anna here called a prophetess? Well, I think just really simply, what is a prophet? A prophet is a spokesperson for God, a, a spokesman. That is what a prophet is. He's one that proclaims God's word. And so if we're going to attach the name prophetess, it just simply means this is a woman who spoke God's word. She spoke everything that God told her to speak. And so I wouldn't say that Anna was necessarily in the foretelling business like we think of prophets, but in the foretelling business, she is a teacher. She is teaching God's word. And we'll say more about that in a bit, but what else does the text say about Anna? It says that she's the daughter of Phanuel. And we don't know much of anything about Phanuel other than what his name means. What does Phanuel mean? It means the face of God. Some suggest that her father's name had been taken from the place, the place name called Phanuel. You say, well, what's significant about that? That's where the Lord appeared to Jacob and where Jacob had his name changed by the Lord to Israel. 
Listen to what Jacob said when he named the place Penuel. He said this in Genesis 32, 30. It said, so Jacob named the place Penel, same thing, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. You see, Anna grew up and she saw the face of her dad. But the thing that Anna longed for was to to see the face of God. That was her desire. That was her longing. That's the one face that she wanted to see. And in God's sovereignty and providence and perfect timing, he provided the perfect opportunity for Anna to see God's face. It reminds me of John chapter 1. We read this in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And at that exact moment, there in the temple, on this great day, Anna sees the face of God in that little baby, Jesus. Well, that's the the meaning of the name Phanuel, It means face of God. But we have more information about what's said next. Look there at the text. It says that she was of the tribe of Asher. Now you say, well, what's significant about the tribe of Asher? Well, first of all, we know it's a great name. So when Naah and and Nate Cruz named their little boy Asher, it's a great name. It means happy. In the book of Genesis, we learn that Asher is the eighth son of Jacob and that the tribe of Asher was one of the ten northern tribes of Israel. Remember, David is king, and then Solomon becomes king. But after Solomon is what we call the divided kingdom. And there's ten tribes that are in the north, and then there's two that are in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And those ten northern tribes, you remember, are carried off into captivity for their disobedience and idolatry. That happens in 722 B.C. They go off to Assyria, and Anna's ancestors would have been those that experienced the kind of trial and turmoil and heartache and brutality of an Assyrian captivity. And what happened was many of those families got wiped out. And many of those families were assimilated into other people groups. And when some of those families did return, they were unable to keep a record of what tribe they were in. That's why sometimes you'll hear this familiar phrase, the lost ten tribes of Israel. But for Anna, she knows exactly where she came from. She can trace her lineage. It was preserved. She knows that she's from the tribe of Asher. One other significant point to mention is that uh, a rabbi by the name of Rashi commented about those women who come from the tribe of Asher. Ladies, how would you like this reputation? He said this, women of the tribe of Asher were exceptionally beautiful and they were virtuous very fit to be wives of high priest and kings. So I want you to keep that in mind because Anna, let's just say if she was beautiful and virtuous, she never remarried. Despite even being past the age of getting married, there's something that's very interesting in this text is that she, even though not married, is still longing and waiting for her bridegroom. Keep that in your mind. And so Anna, 
as the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she's a prophetess. Now let's look at what I'm calling here the plight of Anna. You say, what does plight mean? It just means a difficult situation. You say, was she in a difficult situation? Yeah. The text says that she's advanced in years. It's a polite way of saying she's very old. Look at verse 36. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow to the age of 84. Now, the Greek construction here gives you some wiggle room because most translations say that she's 84 years old when she met Jesus. But it's also possible to translate the text to mean that Anna lived 84 years after her husband died. So you start doing the math. You carry the three. How old is Anna? She might be 104 years old. Think about that. If she got married at the age of 13, she could be well over 100 years old. You say, no way. How is that possible? Well, Valma... I think is celebrating her what? 99? Is she 100 this year? In any case, she's pretty close. And she's still kicking and still going. Here is this old woman. But age did not diminish her loyalty and devotion and love and commitment to God. Listen, age shouldn't keep you from doing anything apart from those physical things when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to your spiritual devotion. Age should just make that all the more sweet. I remember listening to that uh, real famous sermon by John Piper at a passion conference, and he was talking about this couple that was so excited to retire to Punta Gorda, Florida, and he started talking about their shall collection that they were going to spend the rest of their lives collecting shells. And I remember hearing John Piper talk about retirement and old age and how to spend those twilight years. Well, Anna, she wasn't calling it quits. She wasn't retiring. She was devoting the best part of her life in service to the Lord. Well, what else does it say about Anna's plight? It says that she's a widow, and as you know, as we move through Luke, we're going to see these distinctives throughout Luke's gospel that he not only mentions women, but he mentions women who are in difficult situations. There are 43 references to women in Luke's gospel, and 13 references are to widows. Luke has the most mention of widows, and he's the only one that gives us Anna's name. But as mentioned, Anna, she didn't live long with her husband before he died. It says there in the text that she was only married for seven years. Okay, now, how did Anna respond to the death of her husband after such a short time of being married? Think about this. I mean, she had a couple of options because she's young. She could have easily remarried, and that would have been wise. So assuming, again, that she gets uh, or she, she gets married at 13. She, she lives with her husband for seven years. She's 20 years old. And I'm sure she's, if what it says is true, beautiful, she probably could have found another man. In fact, Paul, he encourages young widows to remarry. Turn with me in uh, your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
First Timothy chapter 5, and it's here we have lots of instruction about widows in the church. First Timothy chapter 5, and look there at verse 3. Here's Paul's instruction to Timothy. He says this, Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in petitions and prayers night and day. Sounds very similar to Anna, verse 6. But she who lives in self-indulgence is dead even while she lives. And command these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Look at verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation of good works. If she's brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in affliction, if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge, and at the same time they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no opportunity for reviling. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If, they, if any believing woman has widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now, all that to say is that Paul gave clear instructions. If your husband dies, then go get married again. But Anna chooses not to. And instead, she chooses to spend her time doing something else. So that's one option. She could have been remarried. But option number two is she could have just threw in the towel. Some of you, you've walked alongside widows. You know widows. And you've experienced, just by observation, their grief, their despair, there's unique trials associated with widows. There's isolation. There's desolation. There's temptation. Sometimes so much that they just lose hope. I was reading a lot about this this week, and one of the things that really broke my heart is that the church does a good job of coming alongside widows in the first couple of months. There's cards, and there's meals, and there's visits. But after a while, what I read was it's not unusual for a widow to go several days without hearing another person's voice. It was difficult back then. It's difficult now. In fact, here's some facts. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, as of 2019, there were almost 15 million widows and widowers in our country. And about 77% of those individuals, 11.4 million are women, which means that we have about a, a million widows a year. The Census Bureau also reported that the median age that a wife becomes a widow is under 60. 
And it's also reported that half of widows over the age of 65 will outlive their husbands by 15 years. You say, well, what was it like for a widow back then? And I'd say it was probably worse. They were easily and often neglected. They were exploited. That's why the Old Testament and the New Testament give clear instructions for us to care for widows because widows carry a special place in God's heart and in his eye. In Exodus chapter 22, we read this, you shall not mistreat a sojourner or oppress him for you were a sojourner in the land of Egypt. Verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. And it's likely that Anna, she probably would have been poor, maybe even a beggar. She didn't have social security. Their social security back then was what? Their kids. There's no mention of any children here, which may, would have made it doubly painful. But once again, this is why the Lord commanded provisions for widows. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 29, it says there, And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow who are within your gates, they shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. And then later, we read that being in right relationship with the Lord manifests itself in the very tangible and practical ways that we care for widows. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read this in verse 16, wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the orphan, and plead for the widow. It's no wonder why Jesus' brother James says, look, you want to know what pure and undefiled religion is? It's to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God cares deeply for widows. In fact, in the early book of Acts, we see that the New Testament church is in jeopardy of losing its unity and jeopardizing its witness. And that whole situation centered on how widows were being treated or mistreated. And so God says we are going to install deacons to specifically care for widows and make sure that both their physical and emotional and spiritual needs are cared for. And we get a glimpse of Anna's needs being met there in verse 37. Look at it. It says that she never left the temple. Now, some commentators, they'll say that, well, what this means is that she lived in the temple, which is probably not the case, but there were apartments, as it were, that were right next to the temple. And they needed those because, remember, the priests come and they have to serve for two weeks. and They needed a place to stay if they didn't stay with family. So Anna's probably staying very close to the temple, in the temple vicinity. And she's there, but she's not there idly. She's not there to be a burden. No, she's there, singularly devoted, giving herself to the Lord. Her devotion, her hope is on display as night and day she's waiting patiently for Israel's Messiah. Well, that's exactly what we see. We see her patience. We see her steadfastness. 
her service to the Lord. Now, what's especially remarkable about Anna is at the end of verse 37, it says that she never left the temple, yes, but it says there she's serving night and day with fasting and prayers. Fasting and prayers. Now, what does this mean? But when the church doors are open, she's there. It doesn't matter what day it is. It doesn't matter what events are going on. It doesn't matter if it's a holiday or if it's hot. It doesn't matter if it's cold or it's crowded. Anna wants to be in the temple. She wants to be in the presence of God. She wants to be with the people of God. She wants to be singing. She's committed. Now, you ask the question, well, what kind of service was she participating in? She's not making sacrifices. No, but it says here, that she's fasting. She's fasting. She's not fasting in order to earn favor with God. You say, well, Dom, what is, what is this idea of fasting? Does it just mean starving yourself? No, fasting is voluntarily going without food or any other regularly enjoyed good gift that comes from God. You're putting that on pause. You're putting it on hold, but you're doing it for the sake of, of some spiritual purpose. That's what fasting is. Uh, The Puritan William Perkins, he gives us four reasons for fasting, just helpful for you. Here's number one. The first reason is, he says this, it's to subdue the flesh. That is to bring the body and bodily lust into subjection to the will and word of God. So when you think about Paul saying he beats his body into submission, our urgings, our inclinations, our desires are so strong, and fasting is a way to fight against those things. Number two, he says, it's to stir our devotion and to confirm the attention of our minds in hearing and in prayer. Uh, Every morning on Sundays, I get on my phone how much screen time I'm spending. Maybe you get the same thing. I am just shocked. I am shocked at how much time I spend on my phone. And I've said this before. When we get to heaven, we're not going to have any excuse to say, I did not have time to pray, to fast, to read the Bible. Fasting helps to orient us towards those spiritual disciplines. Here's the third reason he says it's to testify to the humility and contrition of our hearts. And that's just to say that our outward sorrow and grief for sin and our repentance and effectual turning to God, that's what fasting can help produce. The purpose in the fast is not just to go hungry. It's not just empty religion, but it's to recalibrate our hearts. And then fourthly, he says, to admonish us of our guiltiness before the Lord and to put us in mind of the acknowledgement of our sin, which makes us unworthy of any blessing, gift, or mercy, even unworthy to walk on the ground, to breathe in the air, to eat, drink, sleep, or enjoy any other benefit. And as I read those four things, maybe you're looking and saying, well, that's probably why I don't fast. I don't want to do all that. That's like hard work. That doesn't seem fun. And let me remind you that Jesus says when he goes away, you will fast. The assumption is is that we will do these very things in our expectation and hope and waiting for Christ to return. 
Listen, fasting is a mark of true spirituality. And Anna is there every single day fasting, praying. Her heart and hunger were for the Lord. She longed for the Lord to come. You know, self-denial, it seems like it's no biggie when it's sports. Oh, I'm not going to eat that because I've got a marathon to run. Well, I'm going to get to bed early because I've got a big game tomorrow. People do the same thing in business, but when it comes to our spirituality, fasting goes out the door. But listen, those hunger pains, they can prove profitable. If we're reminded that Jesus is the true bread of life, if we're reminded that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Fasting is profitable when we realize that we're desperate for him and we need him for our spiritual sustenance. Fasting is profitable when we realize that our satisfaction is not primarily on food and carbs or entertainment or the things of the world, but what we truly need is for heaven to come down and minister to us through the person and work of Christ. Well, we also see Anna's supplication Because she's not just fasting, but is connected here to prayer. It says she spent much time in prayer. You say, how much time is much time? Well, over 60 years. She's praying every single day. And you might say, well, that seems like a lot of prayer. I mean, realistically, how much can you pray for? And I think I often make the mistake of thinking that prayer is just asking for things. Because eventually you'll run out of things to ask for. But when you realize that prayer is actually more about intimacy with God than to ask him for stuff, then you can pray for all of eternity because you will never exhaust our infinite God. Anna, she's praying. She's asking, yes, but she's enjoying sweet communion every day with her God. She's delighting herself in prayer. And so again, we see the the piety of Anna, the prophetic credentials there, her plight, her patience. Now let's look there at the providence, the providence for Anna. This is so sweet, verse 38. And at that very moment, she came up. And that's just a, a great way to say that God had ordained that this would happen. When you think about Herod's temple and how massive the building was, and you think about the courtyard and the temple complex and all the thousands of people that are walking around and yet... Anna shows up and sees Simeon with baby Jesus in his hand, singing this song. And so for the first time, Anna gets to meet her true husband. There he is. She had been waiting. She had been longing. And he's finally here. And I just want to ask us the question, church, How are you spending your time and what are you waiting for? Do you have a hunger in your heart, a thirst for Christ to return? See, because we live on this side of the cross, Jesus has come. He's offered up his life. Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected. He has ascended and he made a promise. And the promise was, I'm going to come back. Oftentimes we look at Old Testament saints and say, wow, they're they're fasting and hoping and longing for Christ to return. But that was them. How much more so us who have a greater revelation, a more fully orbed theology, 
We know things that Anna didn't know. And so the question to you is, are you longing and waiting for the bridegroom to return? Does that excite you? Does that thrill you? Oh, there's so much to learn from this sweet, dear lady. But maybe one of the biggest lessons is her proclamation. Last point. Look at verse 38. And at that very moment, she came up and she began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She gives thanks. She's completing what Simeon started. It's a sweet harmony of praise. She is so thankful that her redemption has arrived. And this is helpful because it says she continued to speak of him. That word is in the imperfect, which means that it's not just something that she started. It's not something she did one time. She continued to speak about Jesus. And it says there the phrase, to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon said uh, he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Very similar. Now, even though these are the only two that are mentioned outside of the family, there were others who were longing and waiting for the redemption of Israel, for the Messiah. And so Anna took it upon herself to not keep this to herself, but to go and proclaim it, that he's come, that he's here. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and join me. Praise him. Sing to him. Cherish him. Love him. You know, what's interesting is that she understood that this redemption didn't come in an event, but in an individual. And so she points people to that individual. Think about that time when you were converted. Think about that time when you experienced redemption for the first time. Before you were blind, before you were a hater of God, before you had no hunger or thirst for righteousness. But then God came at the right time. He humbled your heart. He made you bow the knee and you turned to Jesus. How could you deserve it? You can't. But in his graciousness, he saved you. How foolish, how selfish, how irresponsible to just keep that to yourself. Anna experiences God's redemption and salvation. And her inclination is to go and tell other people that they themselves can be saved, that they can be redeemed, that they can escape darkness, that they can escape hell, that there is a hope, there's a future glory, there's a salvation in Jesus. That's what Anna does. That's what Anna models for us. Oh, how sweet is God's redemption Thomas Boston, he says this. He says, in our redemption by Christ, we have the fullest, the clearest, and most delightful manifestation of the glory of God that ever was or shall be in this life. All the declarations and manifestations that we have of his glory in the works of creation and common providence are but dim and obscure in comparison with what is here. Indeed, the glory of his wisdom and power and goodness is clearly manifested in the works of creation, but the glory of his mercy and love had lain under an eternal eclipse 
without a Redeemer. The greatest news in all the world is that Christ has come to be our Redeemer. And her excitement, her exuberance, that she gets to experience this, comes out naturally in her need to proclaim it to others. Listen, I have heard people say things like, Dom, you're wasting your life. Some people might read this story. That's a long time to be in the temple. That's a long time to be praying and fasting. Did Hannah waste her life? Should we pity her for being that devoted? You know, there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards who stepped onto the scene 1,700 years after Anna. He was possessed by the same spirit. They shared the same passion and devotion. Listen to just a couple of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions that he wrote when he was 18, 19 years old. Resolution number five, he said this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. For Anna, committing herself to prayer and fasting every day was no waste of time. Resolution number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. She may have been fragile. She may have been wrinkled. She may have been old. She may have been bent over, but she is living with all of her life to the glory of God. How about this one? Resolution number 52. This would be a good one to write and put on your refrigerator or in your car. Listen to what Edward says. He says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. He said, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let me read it again. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. When it's all said and done and you look back and you say, I live my life to the max. I live it for the glory of God. Did I waste time? And so he says, I am resolved to live in a way that if I could do it all over again, I would have no regrets. Resolution 53, resolved to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord, Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him, that from this I may have assurance of my safety, knowing that I confide in my Redeemer. I can't prove that Jonathan Edwards had Anna in mind when he penned these resolutions, but I know for certain that his desire to watch and to wait and to give witness to Christ is in the same spirit of Hannah. And I believe that the Lord wants us to hear this message this morning so that we too would wait and long and be faithful to witness the redemption that has come to us in Jesus Christ. Church, let us pray that the Lord would give us grace to be like Anna, to live a lifestyle of unceasing worship. May we long for Christ's return and be passionate 
to worship him and to call others to join us before it is too late. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are thankful for this story, this woman. And again, the, the, the story is not really about Anna, but about her Lord and how she longed for him to come. Well, Father, we recognize that this life is full of pain and difficulty. And sometimes those difficulties come to us not as a fault of our own, Lord, or things maybe we inherited. But also we recognize that because of our sin and some of our bad decisions that we bring difficulty upon ourselves. But Lord, no matter what, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we're so thankful for grace and for hope and for the joy that we have because Christ has come. Oh, Father, we watch this sweet saint, this precious woman, worshiping, waiting for decades. She longed for your arrival. She hungered for it. And she received. Oh, Father, would you please give us this spirit that we would not grow weary in waiting, that we would not get bored, that we would not become sidetracked, that we would not become infatuated with the world, but that we would keep the oil in our lamp strong, that we would burn hot for Christ, and that we would use the time that we do have to make much of him. Oh, Lord, help us to have the heart of Anna. And I pray for all of those in their later years in life, God, those who feel like they're running on empty and their eyes are getting dim and their strength is fading, would you please renew to them the joy of their salvation? Make them strong in spirit so they could be a blessing to one another here in our church and across this peninsula. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.